This is UCD Business Impact, the new podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we will be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and indeed the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark a little curiosity, and challenge you to think and rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, as everyone knows, everyone has been trying to sew them. Some people have been buying them online and some people have even been trying to make them out of old socks. That's, of course, the protective fashion item, the protective clothing item du jour, the face mask. And according to some of the scientists, while it cannot beat the virus on its own, it can certainly help to mitigate it in certain circumstances. But governments around the world, including our own and other ones in Europe, are looking to find ways to convince the public and persuade them that face masks should be donned, certainly in close proximity and on public transport as well. So what kind of tactics and strategies might these governments and other policymakers employ to get people to wear masks? And is there social pressures that they'll have to bat back before this happens? Now, my guest on today's podcast, I'm hoping can help me answer at least some of those questions, Julie Skiro, who is an assistant professor of marketing here at the Business School in UCD, and she happens to be doing a survey on this exact topic. And you're very welcome to the Business Impact Podcast, Julie. Thank you so much, Emmett. Well, the first thing was, why did you start looking at this area? Because I think it grows out of a, a personal experience that you had. It absolutely does. So, look, mask wearing can be awkward, and it certainly was a lot more awkward back at the beginning of March. Um, and it just so happened that I had to do a lot of traveling um, around that time. And so I got to the airport and I had this big sanding mask on my face, um, thinking that, you know, everyone else was going to be also wearing a mask. And it turned out that I was the only one. And that was very awkward. Um, I got a lot of, of looks. I got some offhand comments. And this was a flight to the States. So this was, you know, something that I dealt with for about, you know, six to nine hours. Um, and you know, it was amazing how difficult it was to keep my resolve up because here I am doing something that I believe will help protect me against a physical threat that would be catching the virus. And yet now I have all these kind of opposing forces on my behavior as well. The fact that, you know, I'm feeling judgment from my peers and it really was amazing to me just how powerful that was because it really tested my resolve in terms of keeping that mask on my face. And this really got me thinking, you know, I was a bit surprised, honestly, by my own behavior on it. I, I did keep my mask on, but it was, it was very hard. Uh, it took a lot of resolve to do that. And if you think about, you know, one of the most taught principles in psychology, which is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which um, suggests that people fulfill needs according to um, a sequence. So they first fulfill uh, physiological needs, then they go to safety needs, and then they go to love and belonging. And in terms of the virus, you know, we're talking about very bottom of the pyramid stuff, right? Protecting yourself against a physical threat. And yet those higher level needs like belonging and, and being accepted by strangers that I don't even know was having such an impact 
on my behavior. So this really got me thinking, and my co-author, Lauren Min, who's at the University of Kansas, this really got us thinking about how people make that trade-off between you know, protecting yourself against physical risks and when the cost is you know, social pressure, ostracism, and, and people judging you. Well, what you're talking about there is social norms, Julie, isn't it? And, and some of these were, are very unthinking. Like if you play a game of tennis, you shake hands with the other player when you're finished. You probably don't think a whole lot about it. It's just almost automated behavior. Generally, although not everyone observed this, but when people sneeze, they cover their mouth. Certainly did before the pandemic. Hopefully it's even more adhered to in the future. So these are things that we take as for granted in society. But how do you make them become accepted things? And that's kind of the, the dilemma that you're looking at in this survey is will people swap protection and something that you know there's good logical reasons for doing with those sort of um, stigma almost that social cost so that's the whole point of your survey that's right and to be fair now uh social norms around wearing a mask are rapidly increasing and the question is well what what kind of caused that what propelled that because that certainly wasn't the case back in march you know anytime you do something that is not normal behavior people people will stare at you for doing that um, but I think a couple things changed. Um, I think as we learned more about um, how the virus spread, we realized that there's a lot of evidence that it's being spread through the air. Um, so, the, you know, the acceptance of wearing face masks sort of hinged on the fact that uh, there was a publication coming out in the New England Journal of Medicine that said that uh, the virus can linger in the air for up to three hours. And uh, more recently, there was a, a, um, a report that showed how super spreaders were spreading in, in public places like restaurants and, and stores in environments where people were talking, singing, and yelling. So I think all of a sudden, um, people's opinions started to really change from, okay, maybe it's not enough to just wash our hands. And, and certainly in the United States, um, the fact that the CDC changed course and started saying, you know what, guys, let's, uh, let's, let's wear masks. Uh, you know, we recommend that people wear masks. I think that really started to change the social norms, at least in the US. And, and I've seen a lot of magazine coverage of, of the whole issue where people say it's less about the science and more about social solidarity, because as you say, all scientists, you know, there's no consensus on this. There's a general view that it certainly helps. It certainly helps to mitigate but then you will have people saying, you know, how much does it mitigate? And there's, there's a lively debate going on. Let's just remind our own listeners that the Irish government, uh, for at least, are saying wear a cloth face covering is recommended in situations where it's difficult to practice social distancing. Shops and public transport are mentioned in the official government communiques on this. They say it can stop spreading when you don't know if you have the virus in the first place. And then they say something very interesting in the context of your research, which is do not criticize or judge people who are not able to wear a face covering because there are a small group of people at least that have skin conditions and other breathing difficulties. That means they can't wear them. But what I'm intrigued by is, is this way, this whole thing is going and starting to become very political, particularly in the US. Uh, essentially those on the, the left of politics or the liberal side of politics are embracing the idea of the face mask people on the right. And I'm caricaturing people to sum up, but just try to illustrate a point. People on the right are generally saying, I don't accept the rationale or reasoning behind wearing these masks. Can you just talk us through a little bit about the politics of the face mask, particularly in, the, in a US context, so they know you're familiar with there? Yes, exactly. So uh, I'm sure that our listeners can tell from my accent that I, I am from the United States. And 
you know, I've thought a lot about why there is any anti-mask sentiment at all. And I can only speculate here, but it seems to revolve around the concept of freedom. So I'll just give you an example from a supermarket, Trader Joe's uh, in the States, where an employee comes up to a customer who's not wearing a mask and asks the customer if they would please put on a face mask. And the customer's response was, we are in America here, land of the free. And that is a rhetoric that I see kind of over and over again within this kind of minority of anti-maskers, um, if you will. There was another incident where someone was going to buy um, a pack of cigarettes at a gas station and wasn't wearing a mask. The clerk asked them to put on a mask and the customer punched the clerk in the face. Okay. So I, <laughs> I, th I think it's fair to say that, you know, this is a really hot button issue for some people. And that really begs the question of, of why that is. Because, you know, if it's a concept or if it's a problem with freedom, um, it's a bit confusing because in reality, you know, we've never been free to do whatever we want. So for example, you have to wear a seatbelt. There's a law that says, you know, if you don't wear a seatbelt, you're, you're subject to, to penalties. You can't drive drunk. And I don't see people protesting these sort of, of measures that are meant to protect yourself and, and meant to protect other people. So there must be something really special about, about this issue in particular. And, and here's what I think is going on. One, I think that it's sort of the straw that's breaking the camel's back because already uh, the American economy has basically crept to a halt and that has impacted so many people um, in a negative way. And so this is just kind of one more thing on top of that. And, and people really want to feel like they have some level of control. And so by kind of saying, I'm not going to wear a mask, that's kind of one way to try and grasp at some control. But I also think that there's a really interesting symbolic piece here as well. So freedom of speech is a really core part of the American identity. It's one of the most treasured and fiercely protected concepts in the hearts of, of Americans, um, kind of right up there with the, the right to bear arms as well. And um, wearing a face mask literally covers the mouth. So in a symbolic way, I think it's, it's also meaningfully invasive. And in terms of let's let's just sort of roll forward a little bit. Let's say the way you've sketched it out that 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 argument eventually comes down on the side of those who think the face mask is a good idea, think it, it really is vital to try and combat and mitigate uh, a virus. How do you think governments might go about convincing <laughs> the people deviating from that message to change their mind? What do you think is the most effective way to do that? It's a really good question that doesn't have a, a straightforward answer as most, uh, you know, very challenging issues don't. Um, I think that one of the issues here, um, as well as that, anti-maskers think that the issue is overblown and that, you know, face masks maybe don't, don't work very well or that they're not necessary. And so it really comes down to communication. Now, the challenge there, specifically in the United States, um, is that there's a lot of um, distrust right now 
about the media, about what's coming down from the government. There's this whole, you know, idea of fake news, which is really adding fuel to the fire. And then you also have just the concept of, of motivated reasoning, uh, which is a concept in psychology that states that, you know, once you've kind of taken a stance on something or you, you have a conclusion that you'd like to reach, you become a lot more biased in terms of how you process information. And the internet is not helping us there because what the internet allows people to do is it allows people to find other people that share their beliefs and what happens when they kind of get together is that they end up polarizing each other's beliefs they end up strengthening each other's beliefs um and the new york times has a really interesting podcast called rabbit hole that, that talks about this it talks about radicalization on issues through through youtube because youtube keeps recommending more and more extreme content and you start getting exposure to other people with extreme ideas so all of those reasons, I think, uh, will make it very difficult for the government, um, at least in the U.S., to really uh, make clear that, yes, the threat is, is high and masks protect not just you, but other people. This is also about other people's uh, well-being. So, but again, I mean, the problem is that there was a lot of fragmented information early on in the states. Uh, there was a lot of kind of flip-flopping on on recommendations, and of course, we also have some fragmentations in, in the leadership. I know President uh, Trump and Vice President Pence aren't wearing masks. At least, I haven't seen them wear a mask yet. So, I think that there's a lot of a lot of fragmentation, and that really. Um, is going to make it hard to to convince people that that are kind of seeing this as an affront to their freedom. And I know I'm being a little bit unfair <laughs> asking you that question because there are thousands of academic papers that really ponder this imponderable of what kind of messages are most effective. In my own area of communications, for example, there's a lot of people saying, do, does fear work or do you have to lead people on and show them the positive? So do you frame an argument around the gain you get from something, or do you frame it around what you're going to lose? So if you think about the healthcare messages over the years, do you talk to people about, you know, getting fit um, as opposed to getting fat and getting heart disease or whatever? So which way do you flip and frame that is sort of key to these questions about what persuades people? And healthcare is a really difficult area. I mean, for me, if you look at tobacco, you know, there's a lot of evidence there that the, the warnings on packets and, you know, they're pretty stark. <laughs> sometimes you, you recoil in horror when you see the actual photographs. I mean, sometimes they work with some groups who, you know, do get the fear message and it motivates them in a way, but other people recoil and don't conform to the message. So it's going to be really interesting in the research you're doing and in this whole thing about face masks of, are we back to that again about trying to weigh up, is it the carrot or the stick that is most likely to be effective? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, and it really is kind of an age old issue now in, in psychology, especially this question about whether, you know, whether scaring people is the best tactic, right? Um, so, you know, our fear appeals motivating. So that would be, you know, something like the, the really graphic pictures on cigarette cartons, right? Um, and the answer is mm, oftentimes not so much. And it's not because fear isn't motivating. Fear is motivating. But here's the problem. It's often very difficult to communicate to people uh, that they are at risk. So what happens is that even though people might agree on the surface that, yeah, smoking is dangerous for your health, it can cause lung cancer and other complications, you know, many years from now, but that won't happen to me. I'm not 
at risk of that. And so this disconnect between, you know, trying to scare people and then getting people to believe that they are vulnerable, that is a really hard bridge. Um, that's a really hard gap to bridge. And so you have a couple other tools in your toolkit that you can uh, try and work on. One of those is um, social norms. So that's kind of close to what we're setting, right? And in the context of COVID-19, it's actually a really interesting uh, landscape because from what we found in our research, people agree that first of all, there's a very substantial physical threat. And second of all, that they are vulnerable. And this is across the board, across ages in our samples. And so what we're seeing here is that actually, you know, people don't need to be scared anymore. They're already quite afraid. When people are afraid, if they don't believe that they have some way to deal with that fear, if efficacy is low, and this is true of kind of any fear appeal, if you scare people without giving them a way to kind of resolve the fear, solve the fear, then people just do a complete 180. They just ignore the message and try and forget about it because it's too overwhelming. So if you do a fear appeal, you have to provide efficacy information as well. Like here's the risk, here's how you can protect yourself. But even with those going on, and, and in our case with this research, we know that, that threat perception, vulnerability are all really high. Social norms plays a huge role as well. And essentially, our research is asking how much social norms are, are, are playing a role. Um, but in the research, there's kind of mixed findings about how powerful so social norms um, can be. But especially among adolescents, um, there's evidence that messages that uh, frame their, their arguments in terms of social norms, in terms of social risk, in terms of identity, tend to be more effective because people are less able to say, oh, I'm immune to social ostracism. They're, they're much more likely to ignore physical risks than they are social risks. Um, so, but in essence, um, one thing that makes COVID-19 a really unique situation to research is that it's, it's just the fact that physical risk is so high that people agree that there is this risk that they are vulnerable to. Um, and yet social norms are, they're kind of rising in, in the UK and Ireland, but they're not quite the norm yet. And so it's really interesting to see how people make this trade-off of protecting themselves versus, you know, not sticking out um, in public. Yes, and you've got your, some of your early research is, is in already because you're using uh, digital and online resources. So, you know, turnaround time presumably is reasonably good. And your three countries you're looking at are the US, the UK and Ireland. Can you give us a kind of a sneak preview of what you're picking up so far? Yeah, absolutely. So across the three countries, um, they view physical risk pretty similarly, although the US uh, views physical risk the lowest. Um, in terms of social risk, though, social risk is the lowest in the U.S. So, and this, this isn't surprising because the CDC has recommended pretty early on that everyone wear a face mask. Um, but what we were really interested in was the influence of, you know, beliefs about social risk and beliefs about physical risk and how those predicted uh, people's intentions to wear a face mask. And so... We surveyed 900 people, 300 in the US, 300 in the UK, and 300 in Ireland. And then what we're able to do 
uh, statistically is we're able to create a model where we control for you know obvious confounds such as you know government regulations or mask ownership and then we can model people's intentions to wear a mask based on what they're reporting their physical risk is or what they think their physical risk is and what the social risk and social norms are and what we found is that the impact of social norms and social risk changes based on people's assessment of physical risk. So let me give you an example. If people are really worried and scared, so they're kind of at the top of the scale for physical risk, the influence of social risk, of social norms becomes a lot less. So I liken this to how many dirty looks can can I handle? before I rip off my face mask. So if I'm really scared, if that physical risk is really high, I might be able to withstand something like 20 dirty looks before I just give up and and take my face mask off and say, you know, I'm just completely depleted, I can't take it anymore. But the interesting thing happens as you go kind of down on physical risk. So let's say that I'm kind of moderate physical risk. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a little scary, but it's not, you know, I'm not deathly afraid of it. Now, I'm a lot more influenced by social norms and social risk. And so what that means is that maybe now I'm only willing to withstand five dirty looks before I take off my mask. And so the implications of these findings is that, you know, right now in the U.S., people's fears around physical risk is really high, which means that they're not as influenced by social risk, social norms. But what I'm concerned about is that in a couple months from now, as, as people just kind of get used to this being the new normal, as cases drop, people will start to become a little less scared. That physical risk, that fear that I'm going to get COVID and get really sick is going to go down. And that means that social risk and social norms is going to play a bigger role. And if in the US, for example, mask wearing becomes more politicized, then that means that all of a sudden social risk might go back up. Right now it's pretty low in the U.S., but that could change. And if that changes, we're going to see a huge drop off in mask wearing. I mean, I suppose you're right in the sense that we're hearing this phrase, we may have to just live with the virus. And that is what you're talking about is we become normalized to it. I, I hope this never happens, but it's possible we get used to a certain level of deaths, a certain level of infections, And that plays into what you're talking about, where it just becomes background noise. And if you're not in one of the more at-risk demographics, you sort of just tune it out. And that would play into what you're fearful of. Exactly. Exactly. Because that could mean that people all of a sudden, you know, they're not as scared anymore. And they think, well, you know, it's just not worth wearing a mask, you know, because I'm, you know, everything's fine. Judy, I also wanted to talk to you about, we've talked about the message, you know, what works best the audience, you've been talking about millennials, younger age groups, how receptive they are, adolescents, you, you mentioned also. I'm really curious about the whole messenger piece <laughs> because there is a, a three parts of this. this. is a tripart approach, audience, message, and messenger. And that last piece, you know, we've generally been told over the decades that that person has to be credible. Some people like to li- listen to doctors. Some people like to listen to politicians. Some people like to listen to film stars. You know, the person giving out the message does matter. When it comes to what you're looking at, the research you've been um, covering for the last few weeks and months, do you think that that is going to be really important? Political leaders, what message they send, the example that they they embody themselves, 
where do you fit that into where this is all going to go? I absolutely think that, you know, it's critical uh, that the government and that leaders um, are putting out a clear message. So, so I agree with you there that, you know, people like, especially in the United States, there's a lot of, of distrust, but that doesn't mean that, you know, it won't help to have a really cohesive message coming down from, from the government, from our leaders. And one thing that I think will certainly help is that there's now relatively global consensus on mask wearing by the general public. As of Friday, June 5th, the World Health Organization changed course and now endorses mask wearing by the general public. So as more global authorities converge on their stance on mask wearing, the credibility of that message at the individual country level grows. I think that um, that's going to be one element uh, and the other element is also going to have to do with just advancing our own research, you know, as a field. So, you know, right now there's still kind of some question about how effective a cloth-based mask is. We know that a mask that's, you know, a medical grade N95 is is going to filter out particles and, and prevent some particles from, from getting out of your mask. But we don't really know yet how effective, you know, a cloth-based mask is. And so I think that better information and consistent information is going to be really critical going forward. And a big decision, really is big, is, is how they handle this in terms of legislation or do they even need to legislate? So are we going to depend on those norms you're talking about, voluntary norms, codes among the community, or would a government take a very radical step and fit it into as legislation law framework? We haven't seen that in Ireland. Um, we haven't seen that in the UK either. These are at the moment, recommendations, advisories, and so on. Do you think that's the best way is to kind of leave it at that level? Or would you actually, from what you're saying, think we should be open to the idea of legislating for mask wearing? Or do you think that's likely to have a, a sort of a big downside risk? I've wondered that as well. I, I think for the United States, there's a real risk of making it a law. Um, and the reason is because we're already seeing a lot of pushback on what is right now a recommendation. And I would be really cautious about, about moving it into law, for example, because that is going to aggravate a lot, a lot of, of dissent. And so essentially what you're talking about is sort of the hammer method, right? When, when we're trying to change people's behavior, we have a couple tools in our toolkit, right? We have communication. We can ask people nicely, you know, we can yeah. try and scare them. We can talk about, you know, social norms. Uh, we can also nudge them. So that would be like Thaler's approach. Um, he has a whole book on this about... Yeah you know, choice architecture and defaults and anchoring. And so we have a couple tools and sort of the last result is the legislature, right? It, Do you yeah. lose everything else then? So in other words, you're, you're, you're pushing a form of technology, if you can call it that, something as, <laughs> as simple as a, a cloth mask, but you're pushing, pushing a solution that there is still a debate about, like we know it's effective, but how effective it is, is there is a debate about that. It certainly has, it's, it's certainly better than not doing it. Let's put it that way. But to take on all the enforcement risk and, as you say, just the aggro within the community, to swap that and exchange that for kind of losing all the other things that you're already asking people to do, I think you're absolutely right. It would be a big, big risk. Right. And I mean, if you think about, okay, well, what things, what things are law, right? I think we all agree that 
driving drunk is is dangerous. It endangers the driver. It endangers everyone else. And so there's a lot of clarity on the fact that this is bad and this, this should not be allowed. You, you know, we're not going to just ask people nicely not to do it. We really need to enforce it. But with mask wearing, you know, until we can really say, okay, this is how we're going to eradicate the, the disease forever. It's, it's super, super effective. You know, it, it, it's going to be a lot harder to get full buy-in from, from the general public. Now, with that said, even though the CDC in the U.S. is recommending people wear face masks, there's quite a lot of stores now in the United States that are requiring you to wear a face mask if you enter their store. So Costco uh, and I believe Trader Joe's is now doing the same as well. And so actually some of the um, you know commerce is, is taking it upon themselves to try and enforce these as norms. And I think that that's actually a really important step. If you think, Julie, that one is going to be difficult, what would happen when we do get to a vaccine? <laughs> it's estimated about 10% of populations will refuse to take vaccines of any kind, regardless of what the condition is. So again, you're absolutely right in the sense that we're going to have an even bigger bridge to cross if we find ourselves with a vaccine in the next year or two. I have also wondered about this. And man, I just don't know. I mean, we already, in, especially in the States, you know, we already have a group of, of, of citizens that don't want to, to take vaccines. And I, I actually wonder to what extent the anti-vax movement uh, will either grow or, or diminish because of COVID. Um, I mean, you could imagine that actually, if people say, wow, okay, this is the world without just one vaccine, you know, maybe, you know, maybe vaccines are helping us, um, you know, have, have normal lives and healthy lives. So I actually do wonder, I mean, I think though, the media really is, of course, putting a lot of focus on these anti-maskers, uh, especially in the States, there have been kind of protests of the government shutdown. But I think it is important to remember that these are still the the minority by far. And, uh, you know, we see this in the data as well. Um, you know, we collected data from 900 people and, and, and people are taking this very seriously. And, you know, very few people are, are really against mask wearing. Um, but I think that it's still, it's a delicate balance because as I was saying before, right now, people are kind of on, on board with it. But in a couple months from now, I think that's going to be the real test. And when it comes to the vaccine, I think there will be uh, plenty of people that will that will volunteer to, to take it enough that we would probably get herd immunity. You know, even if maybe 80, 90% of the population was vaccinated, that would, that would help. Um, but it's a good question. I, I don't know. And again, I would really, uh, you know, be worried about what would happen based on the political climate in the U.S. If, if the government tried to say everyone has to get vaccinated, I, I think that that would just cause an eruption of, of dissent. Okay, well, listen, it's been very interesting. I'll give you a, um, a little minute or two just briefly to say what stage is your research at, Julie, and, and when can people see the, the outcome of it um, when you get through the, the research um, collection, data collection phase? So we're, we're collecting data right now, and we're hoping to, to get this out uh, in just a couple weeks. So, um, you know, what we have so far is, a, is correlational data. What we need to do next is, is run a tightly 
controlled experiment uh, to have a much better idea about how physical risk and social risk uh, all inter interact and influence each other to to uh, predict people's intentions to wear a mask. But hopefully, um, this is something that we'll, we'll be turning around very soon and so people will be able to read it. Great. Well, listen, thanks for coming on Business Impact. It's been great to talk to you. Vaccines, face masks, what the future might um, look like in terms of how we combat this virus, but also looking at those sort of broader trends of how do you enforce and embed behavior, it will continuously uh, obsess us because there's no real kind of cut and dry answer, but it's uh, nevertheless quite an interesting topic. Thanks for coming on the podcast today, Julie. Thank you for having me, Emmett.